Welcome to the Critical Transit Podcast, episode 38. Uh, this week's show, I'm pleased to be joined by Andrew Austin from Americans for Transit, uh, the wonderful advocacy group working for improved transit uh, by creating, strengthening, and uniting transit advocates. Uh, awesome stuff there, and you may remember Andrew from previous shows, uh, so I'm very excited to have a chat with him again. And uh, after that, I will be talking about why small cars, electric cars, self-driving cars, or anything else that doesn't move us away from car culture is not going to help uh, in any real useful way. Uh, Certainly not going to move us into a more sustainable future. So for this week, I'm doing pretty well at uh, getting a weekly show, um, but it's only, um, well, it's only one time that it's been a week, so uh, keep on me and I'll, uh, I'll try to keep at it. In my conversation with Andrew Austin from Americans for Transit, we talk about a number of exciting things. Uh, I really wanted to get him on the show to talk about the shutdown that recently happened with the U.S. government, and uh, and so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that and some of the impacts and, and also... Um, what it reminds us about uh, just just the way the government operates in general. We'll talk about earmarks and this culture of austerity. How we just we just seem to think that uh, people we can just cut 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 our way into uh, success. And uh, and as it's relevant as well, we talk about the Bart strike. Although the Bart strike recently ended, it was not uh, before two people died, and uh, you know you had a lot of. This, this tension between, you know, riders being pitted against the workers. Um, and, you know, really, these are people who should be uh, in solidarity with each other. Um, so we talk about that a, a good bit and, and what, you know, what how this all fits in. These, these, these shutdown with the general austerity climate and the sequester and the BART strike, all these things are related and we'll, you know, we'll get into that. So that's, that's going to be really exciting. And you hear a little bit about what Andrew has been working on. And uh, so, yeah, I'm going to roll right into that interview, and then uh, we'll talk more on the other side about, uh, we'll uh, critique some non-solutions that are being uh, advocated as possibly half-solutions. I'm not entirely sure. Um, But here we go. I'm joined today by Andrew Austin, the Executive Director of Americans for Transit. Uh, You've heard Andrew before on the show on uh, episode 12 and 23. And uh, Andrew is the um, is run, the executive director of Americans for Transit, which is a nonprofit group based in Washington D.C. Uh, dedicated to creating, strengthening, and united uniting transit advocates. Um, Andrew, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it's great to be back. Always a uh, pleasure. Yeah, and um, it's always a pleasure to to talk to you. And uh, I, I, you know, we we <laughs> um, we're both the transit nerds, and we sort of relate to each other in in that that wonderful way. And you're doing a lot of great work. Um, and you were just at the you were just in Minnesota at the um, Minnesota Public Transit Conference. Yeah, I was. I was there um, uh, speaking at the conference and meeting folks. It was in um, St. Cloud. It was really really interesting. had a had a good time. It was a lot of uh, transit agencies from all across the state in in Minnesota. And there's, I mean, there's a big diversity of transit agencies that, you know, in the last episode we were talking about um, with uh, Scott Bogren about uh, community transportation. And a lot of times I, I sort of get distracted in the urban world about, you know, moving large numbers of people at a time and, you know, on a big bus. Um, so it's interesting to hear about that, that kind of contrast. 
Yeah, and and I've talked to and Scott's really the one of the experts on it, and I'm kind of, you know, most of my work is um, really rooted in mostly the the larger cities and the inner suburbs and how to move a bunch of people and really get um, mass transit and public transit as an integral part of our communities. And uh, being in Minnesota, where there, you know, I was meeting with dozens of of rural transit providers from across the state, it was really informative to me just on um, how much of a different set of challenges they face in terms of just keeping their doors open and, and oftentimes providing dial-a-ride and on-demand services for, um, you know, seniors and people with disabilities uh, and and um, low-income folks. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was informative to me. And, and the what I was actually presenting to them on was how they as transit agencies can advocate for themselves politically politically in a way that's legal um, and we had a had a really good discussion around that and I think you know in a lot of in a lot of states whether it's Pennsylvania or Minnesota or Washington state there's these big challenges around transit funding at the state level and part of that is this urban rural divide and legislators see public transit as a urban issue an urban problem um, and kind of it allows rural legislators to say, well, we don't need to deal with that or fund that. I think these smaller rural systems have a real important role to make the case that public transit isn't just an urban issue. It's a access to jobs and goods and services as a rural and an urban issue and, and convincing some of those politicians that an investment in, in rural transit is actually very good for their community and their economy. So we, we had good discussions around that. That's yeah, it's interesting stuff, and especially a lot of these issues pop up in, in urban areas too. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. So one thing, I mean, the, the main reason that I that I wanted to have you on the show again is um, to is I wanted to get your thoughts on the uh, the wonderful government shutdown. Um, we I was talking to Scott Bogren in the last episode, and we didn't we didn't get to it too much, um, but we did we did mention the the shutdown a little bit. Um, and it affects transit agencies in in really weird ways uh, because of the way funding is set up. Um, but I, I know of at least a couple of transit agencies, uh, small transit agencies that, that had to either reduce their service or, or shut down entirely. Um, do you, do you know of any, um, or maybe you want to talk about just the different ways that this kind of thing can affect, uh, transit agencies? Yeah. I mean, what, it was interesting because there was, um, you know, the shutdown, what it, some of the. Uh, major transit agencies were kind of inoculated from the shutdown because the federal, the highway trust fund, which is subsidized by the general fund now because we haven't, we're not raising taxes or gas taxes for a long time, um, wasn't directly impacted. Uh, there was a lot of concern that if the shutdown continued longer than it did, then there would, there could, there could have been major cuts to like planned uh, federal expenditures on transit um, if if basically there wasn't the, that general fund subsidy being delivered. Um, but that didn't happen because it got it resolved. So the major things that we were hearing about was, um, you know, just with FTA being shut down and not having employees there, there, there was impacts on that in terms of like timing and planning and moving um, projects forward, especially for as you know, capital expansion projects and bus replacement projects are in kind of the FTA pipeline. Um, and then the other big one was, you know, FTA has a lot of oversight and regulation in terms of 
safety of public transit. Um, and there was, there was, they weren't able to do any of their red, regular work around public transit uh, safety. So, for example, during the shutdown, there was a, unfortunately, there was a, a worker death uh, in, at WMATA. A worker was fixing, doing track work and got killed by a train because of an error, you know, with the, with the planning. Uh, um, and the, the, uh, the folks at FTA couldn't do anything during the shutdown in, in order to start the investigation process for why that happened and what could have been done differently and how to prevent that in the future. I'm guessing they're doing it now, but that was a, that was a big concern. Um, but, you know, stepping back, we're really in this situation where because the federal government hasn't stepped up to raise revenue for transportation and they've continued to rely on the, these general fund transfers, um, you know, we're basically in a, in a place where all of transportation funding is down uh, and, and uh, that's being that you see that in terms of our reinvestment in our infrastructure across the country. And that's happening regardless of the shutdown or not. So that's why, uh, you know, we continue to work with, with local groups to tell the stories of, you know, the, the lack of, um, the federal government keeping up with its investment in public transit and Amtrak and things of that like that uh, as being impactful on the ground locally. And it's like you said, it speaks to this whole issue of just just not taking it seriously and just uh, instead it goes beyond transit. You know, it goes to pretty much everything. This this I, I've been talking a lot about this um, this idea of, of austerity of just you know we're gonna we're gonna cut 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 our way out of the problem and and how these things have have real direct impacts. As uh, you know, as we see all over, and one thing you were talking about in, in your presentation is that you know we we've had there have been successes, and and people are voting to support transit pretty much everywhere, with with certain exceptions. But um, we still have a lot of big challenges. I mean, our, our ridership is up, and and which is great, but we you know we're not they're not getting the support um, because everybody is is obsessed with this idea that we can we can cut, and we can just keep making it more and more efficient. Uh, Right. Which is, I think a, I think an ongoing problem. Right, and I think that's our challenge. Is uh, yeah, the transit ballot measures are passing seventy, eighty percent across the country. Poll after poll after poll shows that people want more transit, not less. Uh, but we're having a hard time translating what people want in the hills up to Capitol Hill uh, and getting them to to think. Uh, broadly and boldly about public transit. So that's that's part of the challenge. Uh, you know, a, a perfect example of that is just is on the federal side is the Tiger program, which is all about, you know, innovative, creative, multimodal transit bike ped uh, projects. And every time they put out requests uh, for Tiger funding, the, the amount of people that want funding to to do infrastructure improvements is is I mean, I'm not sure exactly the number, but it's like 10 times the amount of money they have. And that's an example of a really great program that is being cut next year because of the sequester and lack of investment from the federal government. So we definitely need to make the case that, you know, smart investments in public transit has real impacts for helping people get to work and get around and be involved in their community for sure. 
And what do you make of this idea uh, that was that came up during the shutdown, uh, which, which, like I've said, is, is going to happen again. We're going to have this, or at least we're going to have the same showdown again in a couple months. Um, and this idea will, will come up again that of, um, of, of many of the Republicans saying, "Okay, well, we we're not going to agree to reopen the government, but uh, but we'll give money for for this one thing. You know, we'll give money for like air traffic control, or we'll give money to you know a, a few poor children, or we'll, we'll give money to to this this." You know, little pieces, funding by piecemeal, which sort of reminds me of, of the, the idea of earmarks and just how transit is, is often funded in general, how Congress people get earmarks for particular projects. And what do you make of that whole system? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, there's some things that when, when people heard about the impacts of things not getting funded, it, there was outrage. So that's why they looked at doing that. Uh, but I think it goes back to just this question of, what kind of society do we want to be? Um, and, you know, and, and it, it seems like keeping government open uh, should just be a part of what Congress does in their daily work, not, not something that's always on the table as to whether or not it will happen. So it's, it's a, yeah, definitely a, a piecemeal approach to just do one thing at a time, I think. And if you think about it in the context of transportation planning, I think that's a problem here too. That when you're planning, uh, when you're planning transportation projects or, or transit service, you you have to plan on assumptions, knowing uh, how much money you have. And if you if you aren't sure, then it's going to be very hard to plan accurately. So that's a challenge as well. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what do you make of the? Um, well, I, actually, so so I wanted to, I wanted to get um, jump up jump up a little bit and talk about the the Bart strike. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that um, Americans for Transit is uh, supported by a large number of labor unions, and um, and also um, presumably by by transit agencies. Although um, transit agencies can't politically support organizations, um, but I, I wanted to see what you, what you make of that because there was a lot of uh, there's been a lot of tension and hostility between management and employees, which we talked about a little bit about last week. But I think. That it, a lot of this came to a head during the during the Bart strike, where people were, you know, management was saying, "Look, this is the best we can give you. We don't have we don't have a lot of money." And and then uh, you know the unions were saying, "Look, you know, we're looking for you know basic safety improvements. Uh, people are getting hurt on the job and right. assaulted." And then then you had these two people that got killed like right in the middle of the strike. Right, right. It's really tough. Um, I'll say first, I'm glad it's it's been resolved because obviously it's really tough on the public support for the workers and the public support for the agency and for the riding public when you get into strikes. Um, that said, it's a tool that, you know, the workers have to, to, to articulate the challenges they face. Um, and it's a tool that in that case, they're very much allowed to use. So uh, I think, but I think, you know, the, the, it, the art strike is um, an example of kind of this larger problem which goes back to the austerity piece that you're talking about earlier and as um transit agencies are finding themselves uh feeling strapped for cash the one place where it's you know relative a very high percentage of their um operating costs or their cost to be in business come from salaries and benefits of employees because that's it costs money to pay people to run systems um, and if you're in a financial crunch, that's one of the places that they often go towards in terms of cutting costs. Um, but what that does for 
the long-term health and safety and efficiency of the system, I think is what's important to think about. So yeah, sure. You could, you can privatize services, which a lot of places are doing and save money in the first five years by contracting out service. Um, and basically what you're doing is you're paying a multinational company to run your, your transit system, which they're making money by cutting worker costs and benefits. Um, and, and, to, and skimming some off the top. But long-term, what you see in a lot of those situations is when you start paying transit workers, you know, $12 an hour with uh, not very good benefits, they can't afford to make that their career. So they're working second jobs. Then there's, um, there's safety and, and tiredness issues. And then you have the situation where you have really quick turnover. So from the labor perspective, it's like, well, no, these are, we want to make transit jobs a career so people um, get trained and stay in them and operate our systems efficiently and safely. Um, but that said, there's there's a real uh, challenge on the, you know, agencies are trying to make do with the limited resources that they have. Um, so it's definitely a, definitely a tension. I think the other tension that was apparent in the bark strike and never really hasn't really been resolved in the public discourse, but is important to point out is like there, there was this very open tension around um, capital expenses and operating expenses. And this is a, this is an issue we've dealt with at the federal level too. Yeah. I'm uh, shaking my head because I mean, this is, we hear this all the time. <laughs> right. And, and Bart wants to do some stuff around these transit villages and TOD around public transit and they basically said to the public, uh, "Your the workforce of BART and their pay and benefits makes it so we can't replace our our train cars and do these really cool transit villages." And I mean, one, I just don't think that's true. But I think pitting if we're if the agencies are always pitting operating versus transit, then the public discourse is going to always or operating versus capital, then the public discourse is going to do that. And I think we need to think about, yes, there's capital needs. Yes, there's, you know, train replacement need, needs. Yes, in some cases, there's there's real uh, rail and high capacity transit expansion needs. But we also have to, you know, provide the service uh, that, that people rely on. And that, especially in the big cities, you know, New York and other places, that's a real... Um, that's a real tension because is is the primary function of the agency to provide and run transit service or, um, you know, uh, make money off of real estate development around transit uh, transit stations, and that that's it's a uh, it's something that just is still out there, and I don't know exactly how to fix it, but it's definitely an issue. And I think one of the things that comes up often is that. Um, you know, transit agencies, like like you said, are in this very difficult situation where they just don't have, you know, because of because of this austerity, and you know, they just don't have money coming in, and they're they're not they're often not able to afford um, what many people within the agency. You know, many of these people are people who have been promoted from bus operators and and other um, you know frontline positions. So they're um, you know they they understand all that, and they're often in this position where they can't afford to um, to to sort of. You know the the money just isn't there in the budget. You know because these things are funded separately. You know these new these transit villages, like you mentioned, would be funded as capital projects, whereas um, you know bus drivers have to be paid from operating expenses. Um, and so I I guess where where it becomes a difficult thing is to is to how do you 
suggest that people sort of um, pe- people who were you know like open minded and progressive types of people were you know who were thinking about you know we want to treat people well and we want to we want to have good transit service in our community but at the same time they're seeing a lot of these well there's you know there just isn't the money and how do you do you see um like what um I guess what do you see as the best advocacy and activism that people can do best practices on the advocacy side show us that when agencies and riders and labor and the workers and the business community are all aligned we have much better success in terms of building public support for public transit and building political support resulting in more money so actually the a great example is near near uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin the the State Transit Association works very closely with the ATU, the Amalgamated Transit Union State Council. They go in united when they're doing legislative asks. They come to D.C. every year as a group, advocates, writers, and uh, labor to meet with their congressional delegation. So they really put together a united front and they say, yeah, we have our issues, we get in contract fights, all of that stuff, but... Um, this our workers are an important part of these transit systems and that's why we're working together and asking for the same stuff out of our, our politicians and i think just on the campaign and advocacy side that's really important to do um as much as possible and and i think that you know from the writer's perspective you know it's important to be kind of uh weary of attempts to like pit riders against the workers or pit riders against the agency. Um, the agency and the workers and the riders, yes, at times are going to have different interests, but ultimately our self-interest is all the same, which is to get more public support and more funding for transit to, to save, grow, and expand the systems across the country. So that goes back to just finding the things you can agree upon and focusing on those and then moving forward in a productive way instead of just beating each other over the head. When really, you know, as a transit advocates and, and transit industry, we're up against a much tougher um, uh, opponent of people who who don't like public transit at all and think it's just a waste of taxpayer money and it's just a subsidy to inner city poor people. And we need to be focusing on pushing back against those uh, attacks, not fighting amongst ourselves, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm on board with that. Um, so in terms of public, uh, of public outreach, um, you, you said, you mentioned a, a blog post that you're working on, 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 uh, uh, people who are going to having town halls on buses. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually going to post this here shortly. So it'd be great if you could share it with your network, but uh, I was at a Earl Blumenauer event up on Capitol Hill and Earl's a transit smart growth champion from, uh, Portland area. And I met a congressman named Beto O'Rourke, who's a freshman from El Paso, Texas, of all places. And he, he's a younger guy. He's, uh, um, totally pro transit, pro smart growth, pro kind of, uh, city agenda. And he told me that they were planning on holding a, uh, a town hall on the bus where in, instead of doing a town hall where they bring people um, into the, you know, invite them into a school or whatever, they're actually just riding the busy bus ride, bus lines in El Paso, Texas, conducting these town halls in Spanish because the majority of riders in El Paso uh, speak Spanish as their primary language. And basically, you know, he said he introduced himself and 
asked folks what their concerns were, what they could do in, in some of the areas where there was downtime on the buses. Him and his staff actually met with the riders one-on-one, did some constituent services work. And it's just a very, it caught my attention. It's a very cool idea. You know, we work with a lot of local groups who do um, on-the-ground bus rider organizing and education, reaching out to transit riders. And what we find and what I found in doing that is that transit riders generally are very uh, open and interested in hearing what you have to say when you're approaching them on the bus and they care about the service they rely on. And part of that is, is because especially in a lot of smaller cities, they're a pretty disenfranchised group of, uh, of citizens and voters and want to be heard, but don't have time or energy or, or, or connections to make their voices heard. And he said that, Absolutely, you know, pretty much everyone they met on the buses riding and doing these town halls for a few days was very receptive, very engaged, very interested. And, and he actually did it in his capacity as a congressperson. So it was really cool. I interviewed him and I'm, I'm going to put up a transcript of kind of what he learned and, and uh, from that experience. And, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully some other politicians can do that uh, or will take it upon themselves to do that. And then hopefully also we can work with some of our local partners to, to encourage more politicians to do that and actually invite them onto the bus and maybe even do that when they're candidates running for office as a way to engage with voters. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. And I think you hear a lot about, um, you know, like transparency in government and sort of, you know, and, and talking to the people and all these things that are often sort of, you know, big picture things that don't get followed through. But I think I really like this idea because, and not just for transit, I mean, obviously, you know, transit, you, know, you want to hear from bus riders, people who are using the transit, but at the same time, I mean, transit, you, transit is it's just, you know, it's, it's people going about their daily lives. And if you're not taking time out of people's, you know, you're not really taking time out of people's lives to, you know, disrupt them and give them one more thing to do that they don't have time for, then, you know, you're going to get a lot of valuable feedback from people who you just wouldn't otherwise hear from. Exactly. Yeah. And, and a lot of these folks don't have, let's say, you're right, they don't have time to come to a four o'clock government meeting or even a seven o'clock government meeting. They've got multiple kids, multiple jobs, you know, so, so meeting folks where they're at um, is a really, really interesting, I think, I think good model. So it, it's, it's a cool story to tell and uh, it'll be up on our website um, here in, here in a few days. Cool. Well, I'll put a link to that, and uh, people should pass that along. Um, I guess the last question I had for you before you go is, um, did you have time to do any biking in Minneapolis? You know what? Sadly, I, I didn't do any bicycling. I, oh. <laughs> I'm very sad. No, I, um, I, I, I walked and ran a lot of the uh, multi-use trails around the lakes. Um, and I took, I took the bus a lot and walked a lot, but I didn't, uh, I wasn't going in a short enough distance or had enough recreational time to do cycling, but it sure looked nice. And I ran around, uh, one of the major kind of urban lakes and I was just blown away by the, I was blown away by the, the network of lakes connected by trails, but then also to think about how all around those lakes, it's owned by public land and not developed and whoever in city planning and like turn of the night, you know, turn of the uh, 1900s, turn of the century was like, hey, let's put all of these lakes into public 
uh, right away and protect them and build a greenways network before that would be cost prohibitive to do, you know, 50 years later was really, really impressive. I was, I mean, talk about a, a little investment back then for just such an incredible quality of life um, benefit now, you know, uh, I was, I thought that was really cool. So I'll have to bike next time I'm there. Yeah, next sure. time, and uh, maybe maybe you'll come back after the winter. I mean, you're welcome to come by during the winter. Um, yeah. We're actually having a fight right now. It, it's a little, bit of a weird fight where where um, I'm going to be po- have a post. Probably by the time the show comes out, I'll have a post up on streets.mn about uh, about the future of, of light rail. And um, as you know, we have one light rail line open, and another one that's going to open up next year. It's it's almost done. Um, right. And you know, there's there's a lot of talk of of you know, where are we going to put the next line? And it's pretty much been decided that the third line is going to go on the, the Southwest corridor, which is this, um, it's basically, it goes from the downtown, like to the Southwest, you know, toward the suburbs. And it basically runs along what right now is a, is a freight rail corridor and a, and a bike path. And, um, there's a lot of, a lot of us saying like, okay, there's really nothing, there's no development there. And, but a lot of people, and so a lot of us are, are critiquing this from a sort of transit planning angle, but there's obviously the, the typical neighborhood resistance and, yeah, nimbyism that you'd expect, and a lot of it is 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 a lot of people saying, well, you know, you're gonna they're gonna get rid of the bike path, and in order to not get rid of the bike path, they have to. It looks like they have to build a tunnel. So it's sort of this weird fight that we're that we're gonna be uh, that we're gonna be going through uh, a little bit more right. in, in the coming year or two. Right. Those are those are always fun. Uh, yeah. I mean, in a lot of places, you've seen the investment in transit fixed guideways as an opportunity to build a bike path alongside next to it so which we have as well it's uh, next to our, our, our blue line on Hiawatha Avenue there's a, right. there's a bike path installed along with it right the, the the additional cost of like a few feet for a bike path is pretty low compared to doing it you know just entirely on its own right and I mean in a related one they're trying to do that in Boston actually people who are advocating for the extension of the their, uh, green line light rail into uh, Somerville and Medford are both you know dense cities Somerville being the densest city in New England um, is you know the, that extension there are a lot of people that are pushing for um, the extension of a bike path that would basically just bring it along the along the whole right of way and the state right. is pushing back saying they don't have the money that's an ongoing fight so. hmm. interesting cool well um, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show as always uh, it's always enlightening and uh, and really fun to uh, speak to you about transit yeah, absolutely, Jeremy. It's good to good to chat again. So thank you so much to Andrew Austin for joining me. And as I said, you can find out more about him and his work with Americans for Transit at americansfortransit.org or on Twitter, uh, A, the number four, transit, A4 transit. And uh, I'll put links to all that. And, uh, and you should go and check out his blog post about uh, town hall meetings on buses, which I think are great. I think people should have... Uh, public meetings on buses for every issue um because if you really if you uh if you listen to the people even if you listen only to the people who ride buses i think you'd uh, you'd have a very fair and you implemented those you know policies based on that i think you'd have a very fair society um but i guess we should listen to everybody but you should definitely make it make a special effort to reach out to people who are otherwise disenfranchised um anyway i talked about all that so um, don't want to repeat myself, but I'm glad, uh, I hope that, uh, that that's interesting. And, uh, I, as I'm recording this, I have not seen a blog post yet because it's not up, but it will be. So, um, by the time you listen, so, uh, I'll be looking forward to reading it as well. And, uh, speaking of things that aren't up yet, 
um, you should go to streets.mn uh, because after the show, or before the show goes up, uh, my post will be up on uh, light rail and in Minneapolis and our Southwest Corridor, Southwest Light Rail. Uh, we're calling it Southwest LRT line, I guess. Um, and I'm going to be talking about just thinking about why we're building rail in the first place. You know, I, I come at this from a transit planner point of view, and I'm thinking about uh, about two things. About one is is uh, how to move people most efficiently, and uh, you know, meet the demand for for mobility and and access, which I explained are two different things. Access being uh, the ability to get to the things that you need to get to, you know, to, to go about your life and to do the things you need to do, and mobility being more broadly just being able to move around the city and, and just, you know, freedom of, of being able to get around kind of stuff. Um, and so in a lot of cases, there, there may be access uh, to jobs or whatever, but not, not true mobility. Um, or vice versa, you might be able to move around pretty easily, but not really conveniently get to the things that you want to go if you need three buses or whatever. So um, anyway, all that's to say that I'm going to be, um, my post is about how, uh, wh- what we're trying to accomplish here with light rail. Are we, um, oh, and the, the second thing I was going to mention is that, um, that we look for, aside from, uh, being able, being to improving mobility and access is the second thing is to, um, make it, to make it easier for, um, for people to, to improve their lives, basically to make things easier for people. So all that is to say that, uh, you know, we need to think about what we're building transit for, uh, what we're trying to accomplish, and, uh, you know, identify the needs, the deficiencies, and, uh, you know, the goals of trying to make better transit. Uh, hopefully, that's going to be our goal. Um, I'm not sure that that's everybody's goal, but I think that that's probably the most credible goal is to improve the transit network. And, uh, you know, and if you want to, okay, you know, you want to, like, attract businesses or make, you know, you know, improve for tourists or make some fancy, schmancy little, you know, steel boxes moving down the street and, like, okay, you know, you might decide that those are useful goals. Um, I mean, I would tend to argue against that, that those wouldn't be the most useful goals, but um, we can have that discussion. But, um, you know, don't say that you want better, better transit for poor people when, uh, you know, you're just trying to put in a streetcar so that you can draw businesses who uh, like the novelty of rail. Um, just having a train for the purpose of having a train that doesn't actually improve anything um, is kind of ridiculous. Um, a lot of times when a light rail line gets put in, people are so crazy about this light rail, and they they're just they're so psyched about the possibility of having a rail line, a, a train, you know, that they it doesn't even really serve that many people. It's just not really done in a useful way. It'll just, you know, you'll build like Seattle had this where they built um, I, I think it was a link light rail line maybe, or or it might have been their streetcar. I, I forget. Somebody from Seattle could uh, email and, and tell me, um, but. It was one of the lines they built was like they were only able to build it for like a mile and a half, and it's just like what what is the point? Like how, there aren't that many people that are going to want to use a transit that goes for a mile and a half, um, you know. And it, you know if the only end to end is a mile and a half, like most trips are going to be much less than that. It doesn't even make a whole lot of sense. And what you wind up doing a lot of times with these light rail lines that you know don't get built all that far is you have buses that will now end the light rail because you're like okay well we're duplicating service so we're going to end the bus and we're essentially forcing a transfer um, it's called a forced transfer and that's um 
that can be ideal if you have like very very large numbers of buses. Uh, the example I like to think of would be your um, the Green Line in Minneapolis in uh, excuse me the Green Line in Boston the light rail that um, has four branches and, and comes into the central subway. And they all link up together and they're running really really close together and delays are, are catastrophic. You know they cascade in the whole line and everything is packed and there's no room for people and um, Philly operates in a similar way as well. They're they're a subway surface Green Line. Um, and there, there are others, I think, um, San Francisco's Muni, for example. Um, and so when you have something like that, where you just have these crushed loads of people and you just can't fit any more people and there's delays and problems, signal problems and everything else, then, then it makes sense to have, you know, a, a bigger, you know, high capacity, like say build a subway, um, and you have people transfer from buses to the subway and you run the subway with very high frequency so that it's not a big deal to transfer and the transfer actually in in that way it actually provides better service because you're running more reliable train service and um you know and everything is just it's coordinated and it all works well and um and your your heavy rail line is going more than like a mile um so you know that kind of thing is is a uh, is a different situation but you know, so I'm, I'm looking at this post about, you know, what, let's go back to basics here. What are we, what are we trying to do? Um, are we trying to, you know, are we trying to please people by, by doing something appeal, you know, appealing to the eye? Are we trying to, you know, make uh, ease commutes from the Southwest suburbs? Are we trying to improve transit for people who live in the city? Are we trying to speed up bus service? Are we, what are we trying to accomplish here and, and, and why? And then, uh, then we can move into the, how can we accomplish it? Um, the fact, for example, the fact that we've settled on, on light rail, um, you know, the the question is not um, okay. What's what's a good way to spend money to improve transit? You know what what needs doing. Uh, we're asking where can we build our next rail line, and then you know when you look at it in that sense, you're, you then you see then you see this this corridor where there's a there's a bike path, and you're like, oh okay, look, we own this, and we, you know it's there's not much use going on there now, so let's put a train there, and uh, it it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense because you you're not looking at like you know, who are we serving? You're going backwards. You know, you're, you're finding this, this corridor and you're like, okay, we can put the rail there. Well, then how many people can we serve? And like, how can we make people use it? And then what if we, you know, which, how is the bus service going to change because of that line? And you're not really thinking about, uh, about actually improving mobility options. Um, there are very few reasons to choose rail from the get go. Um, one of those would, the most important one would be capacity would be that if you, you know, a simple fact is that uh, an articulated bus holds more people than a than a standard bus, and a light rail vehicle holds more people than an articulated bus, and a subway car holds more people than a light rail vehicle. Um, and those are simple facts of, of just the ways of, of physics, basically the way that they operate. You can only have a bus that's so long, um, and you know you need, and also um, so so you can carry a lot more people in a, in a train in, in different types of trains. So that's you know you would upgrade to to uh, you know to be able to carry more people um, and other things are you know just technical reasons like if you absolutely physically cannot turn around the vehicle um, then you know well the train you can reverse direction and uh, you know the trains also require a slightly narrower right of way because uh, they don't sway back and forth so you can um, you know you just run in a straight line and you can build a train say with like a I don't know, it was like 11 to 12 foot right of way, whereas a bus you, you would need more. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but something like that. Of course, you can also put like little devices on buses that will uh, move them along a fixed guideway. So, I mean, maybe that's not even much of an argument anymore. I don't know. 
but there's very few reasons that to just start, just go to rail automatically, aside from just like this this idea that, it's, oh, people love trains because they remember trains. And pe- the trains that we operate generally are operated well, um, although there are exceptions. Um, and the the buses that we that we operate, um, although there are exceptions, generally are operated like crap. Um, you know, our, our buses just like, they're forced to sit in mixed traffic, whereas our trains generally are not. Um, our buses are slow and they require people to pay at the front door and line up in the cold. Um, you know, the buses are just, you know, the places that buses go to the poorest communities and, uh, trains usually go through, through, through the nice areas. The, I mean, there's so many reasons that it can, you know, that, that, People associate trains with better transit service, and it doesn't have anything to do with the type of propulsion of the vehicle um, or the technology. You know, it doesn't have anything to do that it's a train or a bus. It just has to do with the quality of service. Is it is it fast? Is it frequent? Um, you know, you have off-board fare payment. You have uh, you know easy boarding with level stations. Um, you know, how many bus lines have a you know it pulls into a station where everybody's already paid the fare and as it's level platforms, people could just wheel their bikes and strollers right on. And, um, you don't see that for bus lines, but people think of that as as a train um you know you get the the dirty slow bus is the the stereotype and so um and most of that is just because that's what we have uh but it doesn't have to be that way and i think we need to think outside the box a little bit and we here in minneapolis we've we've never gotten to that discussion because we've just kind of skipped that discussion we people are like oh it wasn't it great when we had streetcars here and well, they forget that when streetcars were, were running well and streetcars were great, uh, there were no cars or fewer cars, and car congestion wasn't an issue. We didn't build these cities where, uh, you know, cars were just everywhere and there was gridlock everywhere, and we forced streetcars to sit in that gridlock. We didn't. That's not how it was. And that's, when eventually it got like that, that's when streetcars went out of business because they couldn't sustain themselves anymore. Um, and so it's nothing. All you have to do, you look at the Toronto streetcars. Um, you know, it, it's it's a mess. It's just not, you know, they're so slow. They're, I mean, they they can't make maneuver around the city, make turns easily. They get, you know, if there's a double-parked car, the train can't get by. I mean, it's just, I once was there in Toronto, and I saw a um, police car had crashed into a, a, a trolley. And, um, you know, I don't know what the circumstances are, and I don't know who's at fault, whatever. But it put the trolley, at, it put the whole line out of service. Because you couldn't, there was no passing room. You know, you couldn't, it only affected one track. But there was, there was no way, you couldn't do single-track operations. There's no way to go around a detour, so there's serious disadvantages with rail, um, mainly being that it's that it's fixed. And um, obviously, we need to stop using buses. As we tend to stop, you know, saying, "Oh, buses are flexible and they're capable of operating in mixed traffic," so we should just make them do that. Um, and we shouldn't go down that easy path. And part of it is just that rail carries a lot more political muscle than than buses do because of this this image thing. And uh, I'm not. I don't really know a whole lot about how to get over this. Um, generally, when we talk about uh, improving buses, it's still seen in a different way. It's not seen as like, you know, politicians don't really entertain the idea of doing these uh, high-quality service improvements for buses. Um, so I don't really know how to, how to get around that. But we, we've never had any of these discussions. We've always just jumped to like, oh, where do we put the next line? Okay, great. Um, if you look at the first line, it was put in an existing right-of-way. that was next to a highway where there was space. Um and then, you know, I mean, the second one was much better. It was, it was planned in, a, in a, um, you know, an urban street court. Well, I don't want to say urban street court, or it's like it's got a lot of suburban strip mall characteristics and stuff, but um, it goes through the big urban destinations. And so it's, you know, it's, it's much better planned than it's upgrading, essentially upgrading a bus line that's been very crowded, but um, not, not really crowded to the point where it's not manageable. Um, so I, it's, it's all, it's all, um, 
very interesting. And if you want to see a case for upgrading, a, a good case for upgrading bus to train, um, you can take a look at Vancouver's 99B line, which is operated by TransLink, who I interviewed in, uh, I believe, episode 23 or so. Um, you can go and, ch- and check that out. Um, that was some interesting stuff there. Uh, if you want to see a case of a bus needing to be upgraded to rail, um, that's where uh, they carry 160,000 people per day on this 99B link. 160,000 people per day on one bus line. Um, headways are as little as two minutes. They have off-board fare payment. Um, the bus has, a, you know, not a dedicated lane, but it's like a striped bus lane, and so it, that could be better. Um, but as far as the transit agency is is in charge of they they're operating the max service they're passing people up every day on this bus line and they just they can't really run any more service and make it still manageable when you run buses that frequently you basically have constant streams of buses you have, you have massive bunching it just it's a nightmare to manage and uh, so that's a case of where you know need to upgrade to a to a train um, not just like put in a train because you think it looks good or it's going to attract the tourists or something Anyway, it's a long rant to say you should go to streets.mn and check out my latest post on Southwest Light Rail in Minneapolis. So on to the next topic, why small cars, electric cars, self-driving cars, or anything else that doesn't move us away from car culture is not going to solve any useful pro- any, any significant problems. Um, and this, this kind of came up, because I've been thinking about this for a while, and especially this idea of self-driving cars, um, which, um, you know, it sort of reminds me of... Uh, uh, PRT, personal rapid transit. Um, now, some of you listening may remember what personal rapid transit is, and others are going, "What the hell?" Uh, well, if you've been to any transit conference um, or anything where there are a lot of transit people, you, you'll you'll note that there are always these consultants going around uh, plugging this personal rapid transit, basically these little pods that um, that are operate independently. They're basically car sharing, right? But it's but it's on a track. It needs an infrastructure, so it's basically like a little rail car, a little personal rail car. Right, and you would walk up to the idea is like you walk up to it or you call it to your house or whatever, and you you know you get in. It takes you to, directly to where you need to go, and it's like part of the system where it coordinates. Like it knows the, um, it knows this, the the grid, and I mean you have to build this whole grid for it, um, but it knows the grid, and so it, it can take the least congested route and whatever, and it's all in real time, and it's you know it takes you to your destination. And the idea is it's fast and it's it's essentially car sharing. You need fewer cars and. Um, but you got to build the whole infrastructure for it, and it's just it's just ridiculous. Um, it, it still doesn't solve like any of the other problems, and uh, like divided communities and social costs and you know health and safety and all these other things. It doesn't really solve that in a meaningful way. And so I was reminded of that when I, I got into a little bit of a of a we'll call it a tussle on uh, Twitter uh, with a person by the name of single occupant. Uh, I was in the Twitter hashtag of single occupant. Uh, calls himself a single occupant driver, and uh, this person is in Illinois, um, which I think is this is I think this is a suburb of Chicago, um, Buffalo Grove, Illinois. Um, but and he's um, been promoting this thing on commuter cars, commutercars.com, which basically is just a it's it's how to explain this thing okay so you've probably seen um a smart car which is like a two-person you know those little two-person cars or the car to go car um this is basically just like a half-size car it's like half as long and half as wide right so the idea they show this picture of on the highway where there's this you know a bunch of traffic and there's two of these things in the same lane and which is ridiculous because anybody who knows that 
I mean, you can't operate that way, right? You, you need to build a whole new infrastructure. It's not going to operate that way. Anybody who's ever drive, drive a bicycle, right? It's like you, yes, you can fit two bicycles in the same lane, right? You know, when you if you know each other and you're traveling together, but you're not just going to get like a random other person, uh, you know, just coordinate. You're not going to keep the same space with some other bicyclists and just like travel together in a pack. And it doesn't, it, it's not always going to be consistent. It doesn't make any, it, it's not going to save any space. But, and if you're going to be traveling, if, if you're going to have two people who know each other in these in these things right next to each other, then why, why are you not just like getting in a you know in, in one regular sized car? Um, but the, the other thing that the, the main thing that I have a uh, you know uh, trouble with with this is that it doesn't solve any problems. It's so there's there's two components to this this argument. One is that uh, it's it's promoting itself as what I think is like a half solution, which is basically saying okay, well we use less space. Uh, you know, cars take up so much space, and you know we need to we need to make them smaller to take up less space. Well, you know, this ignore this is basically the same thing as saying we need to widen the freeway so that you know we'll have more space, and you know there'll be less congestion. But that falls flat on its face because of the theory of induced demand, which, as I mentioned before, show the, the theory of induced demand shows us that uh, you, when you create when you when you create extra space, it will fill up. You know, if you build it, they will come. Right? If you create this extra space there, then it will fill up because more drivers will use that road. You know, if a road is congested, there are going to be a lot of drivers that aren't going to use it. They're going to either can seek an alternate, or they're going to find some other way to to you know get to work or to to live their lives. Maybe they're not going to travel at that time that is congested. But then once you create this extra space, eventually over the course of the next few years, people are going to realize that, oh, there's this space, I can I can use it, and, and it's faster for me to, it's now it's now reasonably fast for me to get to, to wherever I'm going and, and drive on this road, then I'm going to do it. And the same goes for transit, right? It's, you know, if a bus is, is packed in rush hour and it's super slow because all the car traffic, you know, you're more likely to use it in, a, in the off hour if you are privileged enough to have that choice. Um, you know, many of us are not. So that's so that's uh, argument number one. Why this this doesn't you know solving the idea of solving congestion by uh, creating more road space is or relatively more road space is uh, not that's not a solution. Um, and the other thing is that um, this this ignores the it, it it operates within the premise of car culture, right? It's it's. It's not accepting the problem that ca- the, the it's, it's not accepting the reality that cars are the problem. So it, it's not just you know a lot of people make this mistake. A lot of transit advocates make this mistake too when they when they say that you know basically the only problem with cars is like fossil fuels and emissions, um, and those are two big, very, very serious problems that uh, you know everybody's just putting their fingers in their ears, going la 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 la. I can't hear you. But those are two very serious problems. But that's far from the only problems that we have in you know with cars. Um, I mean, there's serious social costs. I mean, if you ignore the cars themselves, it ignores thirty percent of the population that doesn't drive, and that, that number is growing, right? Because we're getting more uh, seniors. Um, you know, there are tons of children. There are a lot of adults that either don't drive or can't drive, or you know haven't been able to get a driver's license, and um, you know to. And if you haven't had a driver's license, you know, you it's a nominal fee to, to get the, you know, if you have some money, it's a nominal fee to, to get the license. But, 
Uh, but then to, to learn how to drive, I mean, if you, you know, if you don't have family that's teaching you, it's just like any other issue of privilege, right? Like if you don't have, if you don't have anybody else, anybody teaching you how to drive in, in their vehicle, well, then you need to go and pay for that. And that's not, so a lot of people don't have access to this. Um, and then plus to buy and own a car, it's like $10,000 a year to own a car. Um, and just like, this leaves out so many people is, 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 well, I would say it's number one, but there's so many problems with car ownership. Um, you know, you're not solving the production problems, so you get the these little narrow cars. Apparently, are electrically powered. Um, it doesn't say that too prominently, but I, you know, looked at it and it's it's a battery that's charged. Um, you know, and I've said the same thing about electric cars. You know, it doesn't. You're still having enormous production impacts because um, what about these batteries? Are these batteries, uh, you know, just do they just get made from uh, from trees and um, you know, completely renewable at the end of their life cycle? No, absolutely not. So you know, you're producing a lot of waste there. You're, you need, and you also need, um, you know, if, if we're going to be moving to electric cars, we need this whole infrastructure for charging. We've seen this, these electric car charging stations popping up in, in places, and I think this is just, it's just a terrible waste and a misuse of resources because it's, you know, to, you know, we're not, we, we don't have the numbers that a lot of people are using it right now, so mostly it's, it's wasted. And then if we do get that numbers, then obviously, you know, all these other problems are not being solved, and, you know, we're going to ignore this for another several generations. Um, now that the momentum is building against car culture, like now is the time to really think about this and really push beyond the envelope here. And I have taken a fair, my fair share of criticism, probably my, more than my fair share of criticism, I think, um, for saying that you know cars are the problem, that we need to eliminate cars. And there are a lot of uh, popular transit advocates and livable streets advocates that say, oh, no, we don't need to get rid of cars. And I talked about this before, and I think that episode 33 was when I really went into this and how... You know, a lot of organizations, for political reasons, don't say that cars are the problem because they they need to get donations, they need to get political support, and all that. Um, and you know, and okay, fine. Like I understand where they're coming from, so I don't I don't criticize people for saying that. Um, but I can certainly critique that argument. And you know, what's popular is not always right. So you know, I believe that you know, ethically speaking, cars are causing so many problems, and we need to move away from car culture. And that's that's the bottom line for me. And there's plenty of room for people who are going to be saying, oh, you know, we'll just get smarter cars, you know, we'll get like smaller cars, we'll make cars more fuel efficient, and, you know, we'll make, uh, you know, we'll, we'll retool our cities so that, um, you know, so that people park less or, you know, we'll, we'll um, you know, whatever it is, parking reform or anything. And these things are, some of these things are great and, and other things are just like kind of beating around the bushes. The the thing is we need to we need to move away from cars or we're not going to solve all of these problems, and uh, and that's that's weird for people to get to get a hold of. A lot of people have trouble with that because people aren't used to people being clear and honest. Um, I was just watching uh, actually listening to uh, the I think it was uh, Bill Maher show, the Real Time with Bill Maher today um, uh, in their podcast, which is usually pretty good. Um, this most recent one wasn't so great, um, but it basically. Um, we and I forget exactly what it was that I was having a hard time with. Um, oh, there was a lot of uh, a lot of Muslim bashing, which I wasn't a, a big fan of, um, because that's you know it's all the same as any other pretty much religion. But um, <laughs> my so point is that people appreciate. So, so one of the one of the people on the show was making the the point that um, it's not that it's people have difficulty when he's being clear and honest about what his intentions are. And I think this is something that that's resonated with me. I've heard this from uh, from a number of people. Um, Nick at 
the progressive podcast Australia has has been uh, big on this about uh, you know saying what you believe and and pushing for what you believe and not like trying to water stuff down and um, and I understand sometimes people have constraints you know they need to raise money so they can keep the job and all these other things that you know you, sometimes you sort of water it down so I don't I don't critique the people but um, but this is you know when I say what I really believe then this is and I know there are many people listening that who feel the same way and just either are afraid to say it or just maybe they're not afraid to say it. And it's just, you know, that's fine. That's great. And I support that. Um, and a lot of people have hidden agendas and, and conflicts of interest. So I mentioned these um, the PRT people that are pushing the little pods. Um, you know, they show up at every every transit conference and convention and, you know, and they, they have all the, the literature and the brochures and everything. Unfortunately, this hasn't taken on because I've, I was a little worried about it for a couple of years that it was going to start becoming this next big thing. Um, self-driving cars are probably starting to catch on. So I'm going to say the same thing about self-driving cars. And, you know, so these people, they're trying to promote this because they have a business interest in it. You know, they're trying to make money off of it. And that's, it's, it's pretty clear to me because um, I'm used to looking for these things. But, uh, you know, a lot of people aren't, you know, either aren't looking for that or, um, or if you are looking for that, then you're sort of, you know, when somebody is very clear in what they mean, then you're sort of wondering, like, if, you know, are they really, are they trying to push something? Is there not, they, they, you know, people are usually more nuanced. And so it's a little weird to people. And I understand that. But like I said, the problem is cars and, um, you know, this huge production impacts, the social costs of like tearing up our cities. You know, we have all these highways everywhere that's just, you know, just near my house here in Minneapolis and there's 35, uh, 35 W. Um, it's just, I mean, if you look down there, you can see just a clear division. Um, whereas there used to be homes there, people who lived there in neighborhoods and stores and everything, and it was all bulldozed. And now the, the two sides of the highway are these very distant communities. Um, it feels distant. Uh, it takes a lot of effort to get across the highway. In some places, there you know you, I mean, you can't just walk across it, right? It's not like a city street where you can just walk wait for cars to stop going. You walk across it. Um, you know, you got to go out of your way to go over a bridge or, or in a tunnel and. Um, it's not very inviting. It's just it just tears apart the community. Um, there's there's um, physical co- costs of, of life and death. Literally, I mean, you get forty thousand people being killed every year on the highways, and uh, you know, and that's not even including the local streets, and and many many more being injured. Um, you get the terror that, that happens on the streets. I mean, how many times you you know you have to you have to go out in the street you know every day you got to go to work and you're you're worried about your life. You're, you're constantly worried about being hit by a car. Uh, kids are taught from a young age that oh you know watch where you're going you watch your step you don't get hit by a car you know don't go cheat don't go running in the street you sh- people should be able to go running in the street if they want to um we get oh all these re- wasted resources i mentioned the production costs right all the stuff that we're spending our money on we, you know we're subsidizing all the the road creation we're subsidizing the fuel the parking the um you know the killing the planet um we're we're providing all this for for cars all the i mean the emergency response times uh you know i mean the emergency response resources i mean so you know these car crashes okay or car fires and, and uh who has to respond to that um you know we're wasting police limited police resources on and going to respond to uh to car crashes and uh you know road rage and, and everything else is associated with this um and while we're on the topic of emergencies i mean how about emergency response times i mean I, i'd love to see some data on on how many people are needlessly killed or injured because the fire department or the ambulance took a long time to respond because of traffic congestion. Um, because if we didn't have all these cars, then this wouldn't be an issue. You know, if you're on a bike, you can get out of the way in an instant. Um, you can pick up the thing and you can carry it over 10 feet if you need to. 
um, you know, buses are trained professional drivers, driven by trained professional drivers who can respond to to um, things that are told to them by control centers. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's all these, these cars. I mean, I'd love to see that data. That would be really interesting. Um, cars make a ton of noise that, uh, you know, disturbs wildlife, disturbs people. I mean, you can't have a pleasant environment. There's a reason why nobody locates, uh, you know, real attractive businesses next to highways because, you know, you just... It just doesn't attract any kind of any kind of foot traffic. Um, along goes along with dividing communities and sort of the same the same thing. Um, and, and there are, there are other costs as well. And I you know it's I, I've gone down the line before, and I probably probably shouldn't go go down the line again. But I'd encourage anybody who thinks that uh, small cars, electric cars, self driving cars, PRT, any of this nonsense is going to really solve a problem. Personal rapid transit has some limited impacts. In uh, in Morgantown, West Virginia, there is a university that is using a PRT system as as a major transit mode. They have, I believe, four or five campuses, four or five campus lo- locations where where they have stations, and uh, and so that's a, a different model than a lot of what a lot of people are promoting. But it's basically, you know, you, you go to the station, and uh, it'll wait for a certain number of people to get there before you can leave, before the thing will leave, and it can go from one station to, to any other station um in in it has different operation modes and so sometimes if it's like you know one o'clock in the morning and you might be the only person there then and it has a lot of capacity then you just get there and it'll take you um but a lot of times you have to wait for uh for, you know for enough people to show up so that it it is a useful trip it's not wasting resources um things like that has you know pretty pretty limited uh limited utility but it can be great in in some situations um, the idea that these things are just going to be promoted for everyone—I mean, these don't—they don't solve—they don't really solve the problems, um, you know. And and you can talk about self-driving cars, and I think overall, self-driving cars would probably be safer than a human driving a car, just because of things like reaction time and uh, paying attention. And you know, I mean, like half the drivers are—and no exaggeration there—probably about half the drivers I encounter are, are you know on their cell phones or they're you know, changing the radio, they're eating, you know, doing whatever they're, they're, you know, shouldn't be doing because, you know, you're driving something that, that can kill people in an instant and, uh, you know, you're not paying attention. That's a problem. So, uh, but there are things that, where human needs to be involved because uh, human needs to pay attention and be, be anticipating hazards and things that, um, it's like, oh, there's that child over there. That child is playing basketball and that basketball is probably going to go off the curb and I got to be ready to stop for that child. And well, is the self-driving car going to be able to stop by the time he sees the basketball in front of the car? Yeah, I don't know. So, you know, and it doesn't solve any other problems. It's still, how are these things powered? Uh, these can be powered by, uh, you know, electricity that's generated by coal. Uh, that's not really progress. Well, okay, it's a little bit of progress. It's like cars are more efficient run, and just like trains and, and buses, they're more efficient running on electricity than uh, running on, you know, direct, than burning the fossil fuel directly it's just a just just a matter of um it's just i don't know how this stuff works but this it's been explained to me before basically it's just it's more efficient to run uh you use less electricity by by using electricity that's already been generated at a single source than uh than you know generating it generating it in multiple places and so okay yeah it's fine but it's not like so that may be an argument to move transit buses from uh, from diesel to electric, but um, if you think about the costs involved, and it's like unless you move to completely renewable energy, you're not really solving that problem. Um, and so many problems here. Um, 
I don't know. Do you, you, you think there's any prom- if you think there's any promise in, in any of these things, um, and you think I'm totally off base, then uh, you know you send me an email uh, to feedback at criticaltransit.com, and I would be happy to uh, discuss this in more detail. But uh, but without without uh, these counter arguments, um, pretty much everything I've been seeing is uh, is like promotion, um, sort of industry PR, and uh, I don't uh, I don't take very kindly to that because. Uh, you know, hidden agendas and uh, and all that stuff. And I'm used to hearing, I'm used to hearing, uh, you know, as a transit advocate, I'm used to hearing a lot of nonsense about it. So I'm, I tend to be very critical of information. You know, I used to get when I uh, my work for transit agencies, um, you know, going and doing bus stop design and stuff. We, we get complaints from people uh, who would call up and literally, you know, they talk about they talk about crime and vandalism and all these things that were just turned out to be totally made up. And really, they were just racist and they didn't like brown people standing at the bus stop and you know in front of their house. You know, they got out of a factory down the street or something and they were standing, you know, in front of their house waiting for the bus at like three o'clock in the afternoon and they didn't want to see those people and it was just it became very clear that that's what it was in so many cases so anyway i say that as an example of just the kinds of things that you hear when you when you are advocating for um especially and and can be seen to be advocating for people who are less privileged in the world um things that you deal with it's very easy for people who use cars all the time to be you know thinking that okay this is the way of life and this is you know the the impetus behind something like this and the reason why it gains traction the self-driving cars is because it it provides self-driving and electric cars especially right it provides people with this idea just just like hybrid cars that it's going to solve the problem even if it won't actually solve the problem so people get to get to think better about themselves you know they get to think oh i'm driving a you know a prius i'm 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 good i'm doing my part for the world uh, but it's like, no, you're just, okay, you're just killing the planet half as much and you're causing all the same problems as, as if you didn't have a hybrid car. Um, plus the fact that your thing is quiet at, uh, you know, under 10 miles an hour or whatever, and so people can't hear it coming, which is good and bad. Um, so, yeah, so this is why these things catch on, because people don't want to make lifestyle changes. People don't want to be told that we can't keep driving cars forever and you need to change your lifestyle so that you're not driving a car anymore. Uh, people don't want to hear that. And so I think that we, but those of us who uh, who understand these issues and uh, want to fight for a more sustainable and socially just future uh, in society, and need to uh, keep arguing, uh, you know, common sense, keep fighting the good fight, and fighting for what we believe in, which is, uh, I mean, car-free world. <laughs> At the very least, I will take a, a car light world or a car tamed world. You know, we always have to. It's like, you know, we do all this traffic calming and everything, and it's like, why? You know why are we doing all this? We do all this traffic calming because it's like we have to we have to tame cars, right? But we can only do it in certain places, and we sort of cars, even though like cars don't, you know, most car drivers don't respect the the, the rules of the road or the the use of, you know, the, the fact that they're driving this deadly machine, and they don't respect anything and, and anyone else really. It's just it's all about like me, me, me. Like get out of my way. I want to go fast, and I want to go here, and I want to do this, and like oh, there's no left turn. Well, fuck that. I'm going left. You know, it's stuff like that. It's like. We still have to, because of the political situation, we still have to, like, respect cars and, and, you know, deal with them and everything. So, uh, you know, we do this, we do all this traffic, we put in all these speed bumps, and, and, uh, you know, we have to raise the crosswalks, and all this stuff. And it's like, we shouldn't even need these things. We shouldn't even need crosswalks. We shouldn't even have this society where cars, like, have to, 
you know, where people are restricted to only crossing in certain places and, and uh, you know, cars have to be, like, you know, politely tamed to respect, you know. And then when you put in a speed bump, right, you can't can't make it that high because, oh, well, if somebody was going too fast and didn't see a sign for it, then, well, then they'd crash and they'd ruin their car. You can't do that. Okay, I'm ranting now, but this, is, uh, this stuff gets me really worked up. And uh, I want to hear from you guys. Uh, I want to hear from uh, from you if you uh, if you agree with what I'm saying, if you, uh, if you think I'm being totally ridiculous and um, self-driving cars are a good thing. Um, hit me up feedback at criticaltransit.com here's a just as I was mentioning uh, you know talking about the evils of cars here's a an article I just see just posted by Al Jazeera English Um, Chinese police are looking for two suspects in connection with a major incident after five people were killed and dozens injured when a car drove into pedestrians and caught fire in Beijing's Tiananmen Square. Now, Tiananmen Square obviously has uh, significance, and so that's probably why this story is is, uh, getting such publicity. But uh, this stuff happens every day. So don't, uh, don't, uh, you know, and don't think it's, uh, oh, it happens in other places. It happens, uh, doesn't doesn't happen every day in every place, but uh, in many places it happens every day. I mean, New York, for example, happens every day, um, or almost every day. And uh, you know, a lot of places it happens. You know, at least at least a few times a year in, in most places. So uh, where people get get killed by uh, you know like this, um, pedestrians just walking and a car drives into them, um, and then they go and then the police come out and they go, oh well, he lost control. He was just driving along and you know, and then uh, he just suddenly lost control of his car and it veered on the sidewalk. It's like, no, you don't just lose control of your car. It doesn't just like you know suddenly take over and drive itself onto the sidewalk. Um, is that what is that what self driving cars are? Do we do we have them already? No, it's it, the person wasn't paying attention, was being careless. Any of these things, uh, these people never get charged. It always goes uh, goes unnoticed. Um, anyway, I have a few uh, listener feedback items that I wanted to share with you. First up, uh, Daniel wrote in um, that Daniel is in Texas, uh, I believe in San Antonio, and he wrote in saying that uh, I just just rode the bus that goes to the largest city in America that doesn't have public transit. Well, it still doesn't have any transit at all. Um, so that's interesting. He sends in a picture of, uh, of the MAX line that now goes, I believe this goes from Dallas to Arlington, Texas, or... Um, from Arlington, Texas, to the college campus or something. Um, but basically, Arlington, Texas, is um, it's this big, sprawling clusterfuck that's halfway in between... No, it's not halfway in between. It's... Um, or is it? It's halfway in between Dallas and Fort Worth. Yeah, I was there uh, about a year or two ago. Um, I was visiting a friend who said he lived in Dallas. Um, Arlington is... Um, so it's technically a city, but everything there is just sprawl. It's called the Metroplex. It's just like just sprawling everything like if you think of you think of suburbia like where you live i mean it's just basically just suburbia on steroids there's like these these giant like six and eight lane roads that are basically turned into highways like everywhere and so all the development is single story development and it's all like you know these these big parking lots and it's just and nobody's really walking around anywhere um, nothing is built for people to walk around and so arlington texas is is all about uh, you know it's like pure suburbia and voters several times have rejected initiatives to start public transit uh, bus service in the city and so um so yeah he writes this that this you, you can now you can get to the college campus on, on the bus um it's the university of texas at arlington huge university uh no public transit and so uh yeah she's like you can get there but you know you're on your own after that and then the the picture that he shows of the bus is somebody with a bike on it which is interesting because 
you know, the, the bike is on the front. There's a bike on the bike rack. And uh, I'm not sure if this is his bike here because uh, there's also some stuff like a bag and a helmet or something that's on the sidewalk there and um, no person there. So uh, maybe that's his. But uh, in any case, um, yeah, it's like you need to get around once you're there. And uh, I kind of wonder about the rest of the people on the bus because, uh, as uh, has been mentioned before, the, uh, the, the bike racks on buses only work if uh, not a lot of people use them because uh, there's only two of them. Uh, and at max, there will be three. So, uh, although those of you who are, might be interested in this kind of thing would remember, would uh, be interested that in, uh, is it Aspen? Yeah, the, the service that runs between Aspen and Glenwood Springs, Colorado, um, it's these, these two uh, mountain towns, um, basically resort towns, um, they have, it's called the Roaring Fork Transit Agency, and they have, on their buses, they mounted the, basically the bike racks that go on the back of a car. So they did, they put four of them on the front of the bus, so there's like two on each side. And uh, but you can't use them after seven thirty because they block the headlights. So <laughs> uh, so maybe you could carry four on a bus, but that's that's it. And uh, I don't think any transit agency is going to be installing those anytime soon if you can't use them at night. Um, so Jeff writes in, uh, love the podcast. Houston is going through a local bus service reimagining. Um, I don't remember if I mentioned this before. Um, the Metro in, uh, in Houston, Texas is doing a comprehensive study of their, their transit agency. And I was going to try to contact this board member to find out about that. And, uh, I never did. So I should do that. Um, this would sound better if there was like another person here and we could kind of joke about me not, not, not following through and stuff, but it just comes off weird. Just me. Um, I like to imagine that there's like people, an audience laughing in the background. Uh, maybe I should start putting like little, uh, fake laughter in the in the garage band. Oh, and, um, and Daniel wrote in also that, um, he is trying to, uh, he actually owes us an update because he said that, uh, he was trying to take his bicycle on Greyhound and he wanted to know my experience. And I told him my experience, um, which is that it's a little, um, well, I'm not going to explain it all. It's uh, it's on the website. Go to Critical Transit or Facebook.com slash Critical Transit, and um, and it's on there. And it, it's made to be a pain in the ass to take a full size bike, um, but the folding bike generally works. Just uh, try to not make it obvious that it's a folding bike, and it's basically what I said. Um, he has a Montague Paratrooper, which I think is a so that is his bike on the front of that bus, um, and I believe this is a folding bike, and it. Uh, but it's not super small, so it's uh, it's I think it's a full size folding bike. It's one of those like twenty six inch bikes that just kind of folds in half. Um, so I, I'm interested to hear what your experience is. So we'll follow up on that. And what else do we have here? Uh, there is oh yeah, there's somebody sent me the um, this video, which I should put a link to this. It's um, city bikes are a pain in the ass. This is a uh, New York City's city bike program, which I mentioned before that rolled out. Um, it's a great clip from the Daily Show that um, where they went around and interviewed a bunch of people, and uh, actually one of the people they interviewed was asked, um, you know, who was so against this program, um, called it like a totalitarian overreach or whatever. Um, and you can say a lot about Bloomberg that's negative in terms of being a, a jerk, but not uh, not about uh, putting a bunch of bikes on the street. And uh, and she was asked at one point, uh, what you know, what what do you if only we had this transportation option that people could could use and you know just help people move around. And she was like, oh, I, I, all I can think of is smaller cars. So right, it's kind of appropriate for uh, for this show. And uh, what else do we have here? 
Uh, Scott Bogren, who I interviewed last week on the show, um, from Community Transportation Association of America, or as you might remember, uh, the CT podcast, um, he sent uh, a link to an article that uh, was um, in the New Jersey Star-Ledger, I think is what it's called. Um, the road to quality health care lies in New Jersey's transit. And so this is just, you know, sort of an advocacy piece for, uh, you know, advocating for uh, for transit support in, in New Jersey. Um, New Jersey runs a, um, the state runs a transit agency called New Jersey Transit. And, um, you know, there are a couple little agencies in addition to that. But basically it's, it's um, you know, they provide all the, like, urban fixed route bus service. And uh, so it's talking about how, you know, Obamacare is now opening up uh, health care to a lot of people who didn't previously have it. Um, obviously it doesn't solve all the problems, but it's, um, it's a good, it's a big start. And, uh, so then it says, you know, it talks about how people can't get coverage if they, uh, if they can't get to the doctor and, um, you know, many people aren't able to move around and this is because of car culture, because we've created the society where people can't get around and, uh, buses can't serve it efficiently and cost effectively. And, uh, you know, people are stranded when, especially when they, uh, you know, you look at seniors who, who's using the bulk of the medical care, uh, who can't get around because they, uh, you know, they can't drive anymore, right? So, great. Um, and then, of course, the other thing that I that I should mention, I don't think this is in this article, but um, the it also doesn't solve, you know, the um, Affordable Care Act um, doesn't solve the issue of uh, healthcare costs for transit agencies. Um, when you look at the biggest cost driver for transit agencies, it's labor cost, and the biggest, you know, the the most the biggest increasing item, the most rapidly increasing item in uh, in transit agency budgets is healthcare. Um, that's why a lot of transit agencies are cutting, uh, you know, cutting healthcare premiums, and you know they're they're um, cutting, changing plans to cheaper plans and stuff, um, which as Andrew and I talked about, you know, I don't agree with, but um, because you got to take care of your employees, and but what's going on is is that healthcare costs are going up and up, and um, transit agencies are still having to pay for the cost of providing healthcare to their employees. Uh, and just as businesses have trouble competing in the world marketplace because they have to pay for things like healthcare, um, you know, and which could be provided so much more efficiently by the government with a single-payer universal healthcare plan, um, this is just basically just forcing people to get private insurance, and it's not really solving the problem. So, of course, transit agencies, uh, among others, are still now saddled with, with these you know, ballooning healthcare expenses. And uh, one of the reasons, to be, to be honest, you know, we talk about people who, um, you know, any discussion of transit is probably not complete without a discussion of the conditions of a, of a the frontline employees, a bus driver, or even the office workers. Um, and, and one of the things that, that I've noticed in a lot of agencies is that, especially the, old, the older, bigger agencies, is that uh, a lot of people are miserable at their jobs, but they when you get a job like uh, like a job at a transit agency with a, with a public uh, you know public employer um, and you get much better benefits than you in the private sector you get a pension you get health care you know good health care and, and all these things um, you have a really hard time leaving that and so a lot of people are miserable and they just won't move because they you know they have it and they feel like they're stuck there and, uh, and when they're miserable not only do they not do good work but they you know uh, they give a horrible image to the customer and they just there's just it's just not good all around. And so uh, if, I've always said, if people weren't so worried about the basics like health care, uh, you know, being able to afford stuff in, in retirement, um, and then those basic things that are that are put on the employer, if people weren't so worried about that, 
then they would have the freedom to move around. You know, you would see people who join transit agencies and find that the stress, the stress and whatever is just not for them. They would, you know, you can't just find a job instantly, but they would eventually over time find another job. You know, maybe they'd go to uh, driving a truck where they don't have to deal with customers or, you know, something that would be different. People would move eventually. and uh, But we don't see that because uh, people feel stuck. And that's kind of a topic for another discussion, but I, uh, I just sort of, it reminded me of that and I thought I'd, uh, thought I'd get into that. We are way over time, so there may be more feedback, but I will uh, get to it next time. And I'm losing my voice here, so it's time to uh, sign off for another episode. Next week I have on the program, we have Carrie Caffrey from Cycling Savvy, which is a cycling safety and advocacy group uh, focusing on educating people and uh, cyclists and, and motorists to some extent, um, especially showing cyclists how to bike safely on the streets. Uh, Carrie is based in Orlando, Florida, which is uh, not known to be a cycling paradise. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that and we'll talk about some of the issues that, that come up repeatedly all over the place, uh, legal issues as well as practical issues, um, you know, how to deal with like multi-lane roundabouts and, and just awful stuff like that. Um, so that's very exciting. And then coming up after that, hopefully immediately following that, but we will see, um, is uh, I'm going to do a show talking about uh, rain, biking in the rain with uh, some people from Portland, Oregon, who will be named uh, soon. And uh, I hope I said that right. In another podcast I listened to, uh, they've gotten criticism from people from Oregon saying that they uh, haven't pronounced it correctly. Um, and those guys' attitude was, well, fuck you. Um, I'll say it. Uh, you know, you guys should, should pick on something else. Um, and while I sort of understand that, uh, I also want to say it right. So uh, if I said it wrong, let me know. Um, and then I'm also going to be putting, I'm trying to put together a roundtable um, of cyclists here in Minnesota which uh, Minneapolis is the coldest winter of any major American city. Um, and I'm going to be putting together people to talk about winter cycling. And, uh, you know, uh, three parts, the uh, the clothing, the equipment, and the behavior uh, is the way I think of it. So um, we'll be talking about that. So um, in the meantime, go to criticaltransit.com for more information and uh, check out all the past shows and, and other things. Uh, check out my Southwest Light Rail post, uh, among other stuff, on streets.mn. And uh, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Critical Transit. And uh, tell all your friends, uh, tell your colleagues and people who may not know about the show, who may have an interest, and, uh, you know, do, do we kind of share the word. And uh, if you appreciate what uh, is coming at you every week, um, please consider making a donation to support the show. Uh, I need to buy a new microphone because I thought I fixed the one that I had, but uh, apparently it uh, broke down again. So um, it's a little weird uh, interviewing people at, uh, without an actual microphone, uh, just a portable audio recorder. And so uh, I'm making it work, but um, if you support the show, then consider uh, supporting the show with a donation or by telling your friends, leave an iTunes review, uh, do what you can to help spread the word, and uh, tell me your stories. Uh, tell me what's going on in uh, transit where you are. And uh, I want to hear about that. So talk to you next week.